and welcome to the How CMOs Commit podcast. I'm Margaret Malloy, Global Chief Marketing Officer of Siegel & Gale. This is a podcast to explore how the world's top CMOs are building their brands and the professional commitments they are making as leaders. This podcast is a recording of our Future of Branding series. From the decisions facing CMOs to the commitments they are forging, the conversations are uniquely vulnerable and strategic. Please be sure to listen to the end when I provide my reflections. This is how CMOs commit. Hello and welcome to Siegel & Gale Future of Branding Roundtable. Every episode, we meet five marketing leaders live to explore how they are building their brands. I'm your host, Margaret Malloy, Global Chief Marketing Officer of Siegel & Gale. Siegel & Gale is a preeminent brand strategy, design and experience firm. Today, we are delighted to welcome guests from around the world as we prepare for Earth Day. In the chat, I invite you all to let us know where you are joining from. And if you would like, one word that describes your organization's attitude to sustainability. Before beginning today's roundtable, I remind you that last October, we hosted a CMO panel with the United Nations Global Compact to discuss the UN Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs. I encourage you to subscribe now to How CMOs Commit, our podcast, to listen to that recording. 2021 is a transition year on many fronts, few more significant than the interconnection of business and sustainability. Customers, employees, regulators, boards, investors, all stakeholders are signaling that they will reward the brands that commit to action from social justice to climate change. In the area of climate change, we're witnessing historic commitments by governments, investors, and companies. Many center on the notion of net zero. Simply put, building an economy that emits no more carbon dioxide to the atmosphere than it removes from it. The implication of all of this for brands is that brands now have intensified pressure and permission to play a meaningful role in advancing sustainability. Today, I'm delighted to be joined as ever by five CMOs representing asset management, B2B and nonprofit. And we are going to explore the interconnection between environmental sustainability and brand growth. CMOs, as I introduce you, please finish the following statement. My organization's attitude to sustainability is. So give you a moment to think about that. And here's the run of show. After the introductions, I will host individual conversations with each CMO. I will then return to all for our commitments round and wrap up with my reflections. So let's begin by greeting our friend Frank Cooper, Senior Managing Director and Global Chief Marketing Officer of BlackRock, joining me down the street in New York City. Hello, Frank. What Hi, is Margaret. How are you? Very good morning, indeed. Good afternoon. What is your word? So my my word is is different from the word I actually just put in the chat as I heard you finish the sentence, but it's human centric. Our approach to uh, sustainability is human centric um, because at the end of the day, it is a, I think it's about our understanding our reciprocal obligation to each other, these shared opportunities, um, but most importantly, the way in which we solve this requires us to recognize of the connection, the interdependence of everyone to everyone else. And so human-centric is, is, uh, is a word I would use. We'll get back to that momentarily. Thank you. So let's now go to Dublin, Ireland. Good evening, Catherine Keogh, the Group Vice President, Corporate Affairs and Communications at Kerry. Hello, Catherine. Margaret. What's your Thank one you for word? having me. 
So my one word around Kerry's approach to sustainability is holistic. Holistic. Okay, let's now go across the Atlantic and over to Oregon to greet Akshay Gupta, the Director of Strategic Brand Marketing at Corning Gorilla Glass. A very bright good morning, Akshay. Hello, Margaret. Thanks for having us. What would you say to your one word? Yeah, I think our one word that represents the way we kind of think about it at Gorilla Glass is probably mindful. Okay, from Oregon, let's go to Delaware to greet Kimberly Kupecki, the global leader, sustainability, advocacy, and communications at DuPont Water Solutions. Hello, Kimberly. Hello, Margaret. Thanks for having me. So, if I think about DuPont's attitude toward sustainability, it's really looking at it through the lens of innovation. So, my word is innovation. And finally, to Delaware, and to greet Meg Galloway-Goldwaith, the Chief Communications and Marketing Officer at the Nature Conservancy. Hi, Meg. Hi, Margaret. Nice to be with you today. So in line with uh, Frank's word, human-centric, we are at the Nature Conservancy Collaborative. That's our word. Okay, so with all those words in mind, I'll get back for explanations momentarily. Let's start a conversation with Frank. So Frank, BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager. Now your CEO, Larry Fink, created quite a stir in the last number of years when making a public statement, essentially, that climate risk is an investment risk in his recent letters and his assertion that change needs to happen. Talk to us about the motivation for this and where we are from a journey standpoint. Yeah, Margaret. So Larry has been writing his letter to CEOs for the past eight or nine years. And if you look at the letters over the course of the eight to nine years, the consistent theme is really imploring that leaders, business leaders, think uh, about their companies in the long term you know, not to succumb to short-term thinking. And so you saw early on things like a diversity and inclusion. You saw early on purpose in the, in the 2018 letter. And, and sustainability in the last two letters uh, became prominent. And you're right, climate risk is, is investment risk has been our, our mantra. But the heart of it is this, is that it's a belief that investors who are really looking at assets and risk and pricing in the, the risk in a way that's fair have to recognize that climate risk is going to impact those um, assets long-term. And so what we've done is we said, if that is true, we should make this core to our investment practice. And so what Larry was communicating in those letters and what we've done since is that this is not a side event, it is not an ancillary activity, it's not um, something we're experimenting with. We believe it's so foundational to investing that we're making it a core part of what we do. Now, Frank, as you and I know, we grew up with a range of business leaders who went to business schools, and we were all told that it's all about shareholder value. Yeah. And that's what's made a number of our business leaders very successful. And now we're changing that a little. So we're saying it's about a broader set of stakeholders. What's the construct? How are you thinking that folks should manage that long-term, short-term orientation, recognizing that so much of Wall Street is indeed quarterly earnings. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. And, and look, it's a difficult period because anyone who's received an MBA, they've been trained under the, what people would interpret as the Milton Friedman doctrine and that the sole purpose of a company is to maximize returns for, for shareholders. But at the same time, anyone paying attention realizes that the world has changed fundamentally. The expectations from the full range of stakeholders, from employees to customers to communities, and even shareholders, even investors, is changed where the expectation that companies will do more than make a profit, that companies have an impact on the communities in which they operate, that companies have a capability that should play a part in solving some of the most intractable problems that we're facing, that's now a fundamental expectation that is posed back to the company. And, and you know, there's a recent uh, uh, survey that, that showed that of all the institutions, the ones that people consider the most ethical and competent to solve these problems is business. And so both the capability and the expectation, I think, is driving it. 
But Margaret, the thing that I think will push most leaders down this path, uh, you know, more aggressively, is that the best talent is actually demanding it. And if you want to attract and retain the best talent, they're saying, I want to continue to make money. Uh, I want status. I want you know, respect. But I also want to feel like I'm contributing to something bigger than myself. And so I think that's going to be the primary driver of, of, of the change. But as a leader, um, the way out to me, because these stakeholders oftentimes have differing perspectives and, and interests and um, that often conflict with each other. And so the way out and the way forward is to establish your purpose. And this is why I believe purpose-driven leadership is absolutely critical because you need a unifying principle that will, that, a principle that will unify all these stakeholders and purpose helps you to do that because it's, it's really allowing you to get to the core of why do you exist in the world? Not what you do or how you do, but why do you exist in the world? And I think more leaders that take that seriously and use that as a compass across their strategy and innovation and talent, I think one, they'll, they'll find it uh, easier to manage the, the range of stakeholders, but two, it, it serves as a source of inspiration for that entire range of stakeholders. And at BlackRock, my sense is that your focus is on provide, helping more people have meaningful uh, financial well-being. Yes. I mean, that's where we landed, this idea of helping more and more people experience financial well-being. It's financial inclusion and it's financial well-being. And so uh, and we're taking both of those elements seriously. One of the pieces of feedback I've heard from Larry Fink's letter is that it's certainly imposing new conversation on leaders and new mandates, but also that it's giving marketing leaders some air cover, actually, to <laughs> be purposeful. Uh, what do you see as the role of marketing and brand leaders in this conversation? How would you react to that idea that in Larry putting out the letter, there's more air cover for all of us who want to be purposeful? Yeah, well, let me say, say this first before I get to the marketer piece. When Larry put out the letter, he knew and we knew that it would be celebrated by some, but it would also put a target on our back. And so it wouldn't give ourselves air cover uh, because there were going to be some people who would reject it. But that's what I respect the most about the decision is because it, that took courage to say, I know this is the right thing. And I know this is, this is where the world is moving. I'm going to take that stand. But what in time for marketers, right? Because if you think about, if you think about what we're trying to do, we're trying to change people's perception. We're trying to shed light on a really complex problem. And that's what we do. We tell these stories, we create these narratives so that um, they become much more intuitive, much more emotional. That's what marketers do. Uh, we take data and, and we translate that data in a way that it becomes usable. That's what needs to happen in, in this area of, of sustainability. But at the core of it, and the reason I use the word human-centric, and I think that's where we, we, we're, we're heading as, as, a, uh, as a company, is because no matter what element of it you look at, whether you're, you're innovating, whether you are um, developing a strategy or a new product, at the end of the day, it's going to connect to a human being. And I think we can never lose sight of that so that it's never about the technology, it's never about the data purely. It's never about, you know, even a, a grand statement on the wall. It's a question of how many people have we helped and by how much. In this post-pandemic era, are you seeing significant changes in behavior, be it on the part of investors or other stakeholders? Yeah, you know, I, I'll tell you one thing that surprised us was the degree to which sustainable investing accelerated. And so... Our initial view was that we're going to enter the pandemic and there will be a retreat from that. We saw exactly the opposite. We saw an acceleration of sustainable investing and an interest in sustainable investing. And that's across the board. Um, that is both in, in just purely environmental and climate action, but also in, on the social side. And so I think that what this pandemic, like many social crises often will do, is that it's awakened us to this idea of what's essential and we're looking at that, everything through the lens of, of what is essential. So I think that's going to stay with us. But I also think that kind of where I started early on, the great, it's a growing recognition of our interdependence. And I'm putting, there's the outlier behavior of, of senseless violence, and, and especially lately against the uh, Asian uh, community in the U.S. There are incidents of racial inequity that are continuing to happening, but there's a greater consciousness about the impact all these things are having on various communities. It's a much greater sensitivity than we've seen before. 
And you can even see it if you rewind back to last summer in the Black Lives Matter movement, the response was a mosaic of people across the globe. And you don't often see that kind of solidarity. And I think this pandemic and the lockdown and the forced slowdown in our behavior has allowed us to reflect more and to raise our consciousness about uh, the interdependence of people and what's really essential to us. So I think you're gonna continue to see a lot of changes just in behavior within culture. And I think some of that is going to translate into an investing, uh, particularly around sustainable investing. And finally, Frank, how do we think about measurement? Because there seems to be a challenge. It presents a challenge measuring sustainability. Are there movements towards sustainability accounting standards or other disclosure mechanisms? Yeah, I mean, I think that is our biggest challenge, you know, getting greater alignment around that. I mean, you have SASB and, and GRI and, and those kind of foundational metrics are incredibly helpful and we turn to them ourselves. But we, we've been aggressive at stepping up the data analytics part of sustainable investing. Um, you know, we've done it through our own proprietary platform, Aladdin. We've partnered with, with Rhodium and you'll continue to see us expand in terms of using data to better understand the impact of sustainable investing. Wonderful, thank you for that, Frank. So let's now go to Dublin, Ireland to once again greet Catherine Keogh at Kerry. So Kerry, the world's leading taste and nutrition company, not to be confused with Kerrygold Butter. Kerry, <laughs> indeed, indeed. So my understanding is every day, one billion people around the world enjoy food and beverages containing curry taste and nutrition solutions. So that's a lot of responsibility, Catherine. That is a huge responsibility, Margaret. And if you look at our ambition for our sustainability strategy, we want to reach over 2 billion people with sustainable nutrition solutions by 2030. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned the SDGs because Good nutrition is part of, is essential for 12 of the 17 SDGs. So the whole area of sustainable nutrition is something that we are completely focused on. And uh, just to go back to the word holistic and why I use that word, as we think about achieving that goal of reaching over 2 billion people with sustainable nutrition solutions, we have to be fully integrated and, and that reflects some of the comments that, that, that Frank has made so eloquently where our innovation strategy, our sustainability strategy and our growth strategy are essentially one. So that's sort of a holistic approach internally in the organization and the, the approach internally in the organization whereby everybody in the organization is responsible for sustainability. It's not a department, it's not a division, but it's actually embedded right across the organization. So again, that sort of holistic approach uh, internally. And then we look external to the organization and we look at the, the, the multitude of stakeholders that we're engaged with, whether that's in the value chain, whether that's our suppliers, our customers, et cetera. So really to achieve that objective of reaching over 2 billion people with sustainable nutrition by 2030, we are completely, I guess, dependent and interdependent on all of those other uh, players in, in our food ecosystem, as well as uh, uh, being having a holistic integrated approach internally. Catherine, Frank mentioned purpose. What is the purpose of Kerry? So our purpose, it was 2018 that we actually started the purpose work. So I don't know if, there, if there's a connection there, but we went around the world. We, we met with hundreds of our employees. We have 26,000 people globally. We had roundtables, we had discussions, and we had workshops with about 22,000 people uh, across the globe. So we really built our purpose out from right across the organization. And our purpose is inspiring food, nourishing life. So inspiring food is around innovation, creating great tasting and nutritional uh, ingredients and products. And nourishing life is actually about sustainability. It's about nurturing and, and nourishing people, planet, and of course, consumers with sustainable nutrition. Catherine, I know you are very data centric and I know you have a thousand food scientists around the world. Yes, we do. What, are, what are you seeing in terms of customer behavior because food's an interesting category. We have to navigate taste, quality, price, sustainability. What can we glean from your research around what customers, consumers expect? So we call today's consumer the and consumer, Margaret, because we want, as we all know, we want something to taste great. We want to have a solid, good nutritional profile. We want it to be locally sourced. 
we want uh, the ingredients uh, to, to be clean, etc. So, so what we are seeing is not dissimilar to, uh, to, to the comments around sustainable investment. What we have seen in the last year is all of the trends we would have identified pre-COVID, so trends towards you know plant-based food, trends around maybe localized trends around you know using nutrition to help boost our immunity so like all of those trends have accelerated during COVID because I think what it's taught us first of all it's given us time to really think about our food and, and food is playing an ever-increasing role in our lives become more important but also I think that idea of the realization that we can't really lead a very healthy life on an unhealthy planet and just 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 bringing some of those I suppose, just that thinking, driving at home. So consumers are increasingly concerned with purpose, increasingly concerned with sustainability, uh, increasingly concerned with companies really delivering, having incredible, I guess, sustainable credentials. So that's become increasingly important. And finally, Catherine, you mentioned consumers' expectations. What do you see as the role of the marketer? and the chief marketing officer in communicating and delivering that message? The marketers have a responsibility and I suppose an opportunity. Uh, We as marketers, we look at what's happening around the world. We can assess at a very high level data, trends, what's happening in different regions, what's happening, you know, in the regulatory environment. And we can distill this down to insights and then use those insights to educate and to tell the story and to tell the sustainability story. And then if you think about marketers in the B2B spaces, such as uh, companies like Kerry, we have this great opportunity also to help our customers uh, tell the story. And, you know, whether that's reducing salt, fat, sugar, whether that's reducing carbon emissions. But we have this great opportunity and great platform as marketers, especially in the B2B space, to tell the story around sustainability and also to help our customers tell that story. Wonderful. Thank you, Catherine. Let's now go back to Oregon, where we have Akshay Gupta, the Director of Strategic Marketing and Brand Communications at Corning Gorilla Glass. This is a fascinating company on many ways. For nearly 170 years, Corning has been improving people's life with glass and material sciences. When I was doing my research, I came across some really interesting factoids. We owe a lot of gratitude to Corning. The modern day light bulb wouldn't exist without Corning. Similarly, the optical fibers that are powering the digital revolution and our LCD market. But perhaps most important to many of us of all is the notion that these phones that we all hold so dearly, many have been have featured Corning glass products. So a lot of touch points there, Akshay. Tell us about your word and why you chose your word as it pertains to sustainability. Thanks, uh, Margaret. So if you go back about 10 years ago, when we first created the brand in 2011, we stepped back and asked ourselves a question. You're going to call this brand Corning Gorilla Glass. And if you look at that moment in time, gorillas as a species were stressed. And so we reached out and immediately had a conversation with the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund, had a discussion with them. They actually advised us on the brand creation, and we also started working with them at that moment in time. So it's part of our culture. When you start to do something, you always start to sort of get a sense of the environment and do a deep dive analytical view, as well as an emotional view of what you're trying to do. So Gorilla was born working with them, and today you know, we're, we're further accelerating our engagement with them, and largely because a brand like ours cannot exist if the gorillas themselves don't have a healthy, thriving ecosystem and habitat. So they all kind of fit together. And that's been sort of a key portion of how we have tackled the whole situation here. And where is Corning Gorilla Glass on your sustainability journey? So I think it's, for me personally, I think it's, it's a journey that we're all on and it's, a, it's what I consider where we're at is in the mechanistic phase, sort of this place where we're all trying to establish collectively, I think you're hearing it from everybody, you know, what are your credentials, what mechanisms have you put in place for, fundamentally with roles, responsibilities, structure, and what I'm intrigued by as we go through this journey of trying to bring sustainability to the forefront is, you know, how do we transition into the collective conscience space? Because if you go back in time, for the most part of human history, right up until we started industrializing, 
the environment, nature, and us were well connected. It was our survivability depended on it. And as we sort of industrialized, as we transitioned to the digital revolution, that sort of snapped, right? We broke away from it. Nature was something else. And I think for me personally, we're at this moment where this young generation, the Gen Z and millennials, and most people coming into the era of climate change, even kids being born today, this is a part of their collective conscience. So we're going through a primary shift here. And the question is, how fast do we as businesses, institutions, governments transition to that? And how closely can we close the gap where it's natural to us? Because that's when we're going to resonate with this audience. And in terms of targets, has Corning Gorilla Glass set any targets at this time? So I think, again, it's more about, you know, the, the work we're doing at the Fosse Fund right now, trying to focus, because we're in, you've got to understand we're an ingredient brand, so we're very different. We're inside a parent called Corning. So, you know, the work we're doing with uh, the Fosse Fund right now is really critical to, to our, our scope of the brand and trying to make sure that, you know, we're telling their story and their message concurrent with our work is kind of where we're at in the journey at the moment. And obviously, you're an incredibly innovation-driven company. What do you see as the role for the marketer? in this context yeah and i think personally this is where i come back to the collective conscience piece i think the brands that get more natural and the, the institutions that get more natural with the with their with our journey on sustainability and our journey on how we interact with the environment and the planet are the ones that are actually going to resonate better with this upcoming generation and that's what's interesting to us because if you look at mobile devices it's really the it's, it's flattened the world from a communication standpoint. There are no boundaries, there are no barriers. And when you look at this generation of Gen Z millennials, they've grown up with devices, so they don't see the world as barriers and boundaries. It's a very unique attribute with this audience and their primary uses of this device. So I think as brands and as I look at the landscape going forward, personally for me, it's interesting to see how fast we can close that gap because that's when the connection, I think Frank brought it up, they're going to want to work for brands and companies and institutions that come across more natural and more, quote unquote, in the word, the word I was using, collective consciousness, where it's more natural to them. And that's where they're going to gravitate towards. You mentioned you're an ingredient brand. Are you seeing any changes in demands or behaviors on the part of your customers now in this post-pandemic era, recognizing that the lead time to production in, in your world can be uh, elongated? I think what the pandemic's done fundamentally with mobile devices is you're just using it a lot, right? I think just look at what's happening around you right now. We're all on mobile devices. We're communicating virtually. And the fact that, you know, the moment you bring a device on, you're touching Gorilla, that's fun. You know, we're on over 8 billion devices right now. So, you know, that's been the fundamental, you know, shift. The pandemic in some ways has just brought digital communications even closer and more relevant than it was before we started. Marvelous. Well, thank you for that, Akshay. So from the wonderful world of glass, let's go to the world of water, where Kimberly, Kimberly Kupeki, Global Leader, Sustainability, Advocacy and Communications at DuPont Water Solutions, a company that's dedicated to solving the global challenges for purification, conservation and reuse. Kimberly, in, in thinking about this conversation, it struck me that water is a unique substance. There is no substitute for water. Tell us about your word and where DuPont Water Solutions is on your sustainability journey. Thanks, Margaret. Yeah, I'll speak to the water piece and then also broader DuPont because I think it all fits together with many of the themes that have been brought up, especially around digitalization. So in terms of water, yeah, no substitute. And the way we are approaching it is through, you know, really more sort of transformational leadership. We all know about thought leadership, right? And we have a vision that's definitely far outside of ourselves. So it's very important that, you know, we have partners to collaborate with. But where we see the big opportunity in water is really around looking at what's the need, um, whether it's an industry or, or drinking water or, or what have you. And then how do we kind of you know, kind of treat that water, you can really get it to any state you want, right, with innovation technology. So the question is, you know, thinking about it, you know, what sort of, you know, technologies do you need, but also where's the investment and, you know, how do we get sort of the, the, the government, the policy piece lined up as well? 
But the idea is how do you optimize that, that water source, whether it's, it's for drinking. Sometimes we over-treat water, so we might treat water to drinking water standards and flush it down the toilet, and then we under-treat water, right? So we, you know, let water go into natural, you know, rivers and, and surface waters and groundwaters. In some cases, you know, 80% of our, of our wastewater is not treated. So how do, we, how do we get that equation right? And so we talk about vision for a water-optimized world. And what are all the pieces that, that go into making that a reality? So that's currently how we're looking at things. It's a fairly new sort of concept and vision that we are starting to roll, roll out and, and, you know, really develop key foundational partnerships that help us move that vision forward together. At this time, do you have any targets that you've communicated publicly? We do. So I won't go through them all now because there's a number of them, but I'll, I'll touch on a, on a couple of them. Um, there's certainly commitments related to water specifically, and there's one that's around, you know, DuPont's a manufacturer, right? So we use water. So, you know, we're going through the algorithms to understand, you know, where are we at with scarcity and all that sort of thing. How do we take our, our water solutions and deploy those solutions throughout the rest of DuPont, right? So that's DWS for DuPont, DuPont Water Solutions for DuPont. But I think more broadly, and, and what this audience might be more interested in is really, you know, we want to impact millions of people through, you know, how do we open up access through partnerships and innovation for, for millions of, of people who currently don't have, you know, water sources that support their, their lives and their livelihoods. What's fascinating about water also is that the water crisis isn't imminent, it's here. And, and that was a message that came to me from actually watching Brave Blue World, a beautiful Netflix streaming documentary that you partnered in. And folks, Kimberly is a, a star in this documentary, narrated by a fellow countryman of mine, Liam Neeson. But I encourage all of you to watch it. It's available on 27 languages on Netflix. Kimberly, Talk to us about that. You mentioned collaboration, the role of that collaboration in propagating the message around the importance of water. Sure, Margaret. Yes. So it really started probably a couple of years or more now with, you know, a relationship that at the time we were with Dow, but I guess more of a personal relationship with Paulo Callan, who is the CEO and founder of Blue Tech Research. So he had this spark of an idea to tell the story of, of water, a different story that had been untold to this point. And when he brought this idea to me as one of the very early partners to get involved with this collaboration, I resonated because I had the same frustration as he did, which was the water discussion was only around the problem, which is real. But he and I know there are solutions and there are solutions really to any of the problems and all of them. So even though the water crisis is imminent, the solutions are also imminent. And it's a matter of kind of how do you map all that together with the, the human element. So that was sort of the spark that, you know, started as a sheet, sheet of paper, <laughs> uh, maybe a few sheets of paper. But it, over time, I think of it as a snowball because as that vision became shaped, we were able to bring in our customers and have them help tell the story of the Chennai, India part of that story, the Orange County part of that story. Those are customers of ours and we know those stories. So it was great for us to be able to make those connections and tell that story as well as our, as our own story on that journey. So it's, it's really a compelling story of, of optimism and human spirit. So that's what's so exciting about it. And, and the film itself has gotten so much, so many legs, star power it has attracted, you know, Matt Damon, water.org and, Jaden Smith, Liam Neeson, even Bono when it comes to the music scoring. So it, it's grown over time in terms of its, I think, interest and, and sort of prestige, if you will. So I think now let's continue telling that story because it's a way to help us turn that around and get around this inflection point of the water crisis. Well, thank you for Kimberly. And I think it's a gorgeous example of the role a marketer can bring. I know you're a trained engineer, but also a marketer can bring to this conversation. And thank you for everything you do in preserving this blue planet we all live in. Now, let's go finally, patiently waiting, Meg Galloway-Goldwith at the Nature Conservancy. 
So another tremendously intriguing organization with boots on the ground in 72 countries and territories, the Nature Conservancy recently set some of the most ambitious targets and goals in your 70-year history around climate crisis and biodiversity. So tell us about that, Meg, and your word being, I think you said, collaboration. Thanks so much. And I'm just so taken and really moved by all the comments of um, my colleagues here on this panel. It is incredibly encouraging to listen to what everyone else is saying in terms of what other corporations are doing. And that's why we have, well, I've chosen the word collaboration for the Nature Conservancy, which is, yes, we have incredibly audacious goals that we have just set for to achieve by the year 2030. We are not going to achieve those on our own. We need to do so in collaboration with organizations that like those that are on this panel right now. And then obviously the rest of the world. I mean, look, we'd, we're all here talking about this problem, both biodiversity crisis as well as the crime, uh, climate crisis, because it is a massive problem. It is the most complex problem that has faced our lives. And frankly, the window to operate and fix that is closing fast. So we at the Nature Conservancy, you know, one of our most unique characteristics really is collaboration. And I'll just give you one example. If you um, take, imagine that you're in Canada over on the West Coast in British Columbia, just between say Seattle and Alaska, there's an incredible expanse that's called the Great Bear Rainforest. It's known as the Amazon of the North. And in that rainforest, there are incredible species, grizzlies, of course, and you know, orcas in the waters and whatnot. But there's also this really important and special bear that's called the Kermode bear. It's this lovely cream-colored animal that's considered the spirit animal of the Shimshuan people. And it's those people, those First Nations of North America that we are working with and collaborating with to do our work. That's just one example. And then, of course, we're working with companies like BlackRock on, you know, coming up with, you know, important financial tools to solve the climate crisis and CPG and retail brands to help us reach new and diverse customers. So, you know, it's all about collaboration for us. It's a massive planet-sized problem we have to solve. And it's going to take the entire planet to solve it. And what do you see as the role of marketers in that solution? So, really, as marketers, we are storytellers, right? So, at, at the heart of everything that we do, we are connectors. So, here at the Nature Conservancy, my role is to help connect the strategy with what we are trying to achieve as an organization together with the audience, those people that need to step up and take those actions, support the brands that are doing what they need to do for sustainability in order for us to reach our end goal. Because as marketers, again, it's our responsibility to gain the buy-in literally the buy-in from customers, from employees and suppliers, like we've all talked about it. We need to show those people how this is personal, how they can connect their dollars with the demand, align that with how they deliver their, you know, put their investments in mind and, and how they make their purchases, because that's the only way that we're going to really sort of solve the climate crisis that we're in right now. Now, Meg, one of your most renowned initiatives is the Billion Tree Initiative. Catch us up on that one. So we have, you know, it, again, a lot of people, you know, when we're talking about the climate crisis right now, people will absolutely, some can feel a sense of despair. And it's important for us, again, as marketers, to allow people to make connections directly that they can do individually in order to help our planet. And so at the Nature Conservancy, we have a wonderful program that's called Plant a Billion Trees. And it's a way for our audience members to, or, you know, our audience that's out there that's listening to our messages to participate by supporting companies 
who are uh, using their dollars in order to plant trees around the world. And so it's called Plant a Billion Trees, and it really is a very simple way to take a big problem like biodiversity crises and climate crises and boil it into a simple action, which is planting a tree. Almost like a, a gateway drug, if you will, to climate. Exactly. <laughs> That's how I see it. And Meg, today's a big day for the Nature Conservancy here in New York City. I believe you are going to be present at the NASDAQ. Yes, we're thrilled in spite of the pandemic. We are going to be able to participate in the virtual closing bell. Our CEO, Jen Morris, will be sounding that off uh, around about four and for an hour before that. We have a wonderful film uh, PSA that was voiced over by Angela Bassett that talks about the importance of speaking up for nature. And so that's going to be showing at the NASDAQ today, and we're all really excited about it. Well, thank you for everything you do to speak up for nature. So now, before I commence the commitments round, I'd like to invite our audience back into the conversation. And uh, Meg gave us a lovely segue in referencing optimism. So I'd like to ask the audience in the chat to tell us what gives you most optimism as we look at the opportunity ahead in terms of sustainability. So while our audience contributes in the chat, I'm going to start back with Frank again. So Frank, in my mind, optimism is a belief that tomorrow will be better than today. I know you too share that belief. What gives you most optimism? It's a daunting challenge, sustainability. It, it is, but um, and Meg actually touched on it really well. I, I thought for me, it's the it's the acts of collective resilience that we're seeing all around us. You know, when I look at the conversations in social media around sustainability and 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 social justice, I'm encouraged by it. As crazy as that that platform, those platforms can be, you're seeing collective resilience. When I look at partnerships, you know, um, there's a realization that no one can do this alone, and and you know, we're partnering with. Bill Gates's Breakthrough Energy, Nature Conservancy, we partner with, with Nature Conservancy, we partner with Tomasic. We have a $600 million fund to invest in uh, innovative technologies around decarbonization. It's the realization that we need each other and we can't do it alone. And that sense of collective resilience is what gives me optimism. And what's your organization, specifically BlackRock's commitment to continuing to stay in front of this sustainability agenda? Well, I mean, we, we've made a commitment, first and foremost, uh, that sustainability will be our new standard for investing. Secondly, uh, we made a commitment to change our investment approach so that we have an accelerated transition to net zero. You know, third, we are uh, prioritizing and making the default investment in many of our funds uh, lean towards sustainability. And then again, you're seeing all the partnerships you know, from from partnering with Rhodium for, for data analytics around sustainability to breakthrough energy. There's a litany of partnerships where we are aggressively following up what we said we would do, and that is make sustainability our standard. What about your personal commitment, Frank? So my personal commitment, I'm most interested in the notion that climate action is absolutely necessary and we should go against it. And I'm personally gonna go against it um, full force. However, we should also keep an eye on the impact it has on communities. There should be an inclusive transition, a just transition, so that the communities that actually contributed the least to the problem don't suffer the most. And so I think we have the capability of doing both things. And so my personal commitment is to ensure that we have a, a just transition uh, as we move toward a greener economy. Thank you for that, Frank. So Catherine, the same question. What gives you optimism from your perch in Dublin, Ireland, with a vantage point on food and beverages across the world? What gives me great optimism, uh, Margaret, is first of all, consumers are demanding and asking for what we call sustainable nutrition. So great tasting products, but that have less impact on the environment. In the past, when you had a great tasting product, you pretty much knew it wasn't that good for you, right? And then when you had a product that was had the right nutritional profile, it just didn't taste that great. But now science has caught up and innovation has caught up. And now we can actually produce great tasting products that are good for you and that don't have a, a negative, uh, as negative an impact uh, in, terms, in terms of the environment. So that gives me great hope. And that the, the fact that the consumer is demanding this 
uh, that uh, our industry can can produce this and that our employees are are expecting and asking us to deliver on this that gives me a great sense of optimism and what's Kerry's commitment to sustainability so we have a number of targets laid out in our beyond the horizon strategy but our real commitment and the real impact continues to be working with our customers to help them deliver on their sustainable uh, sustainability objectives. And that's where we can really have the most impact and reach the most consumers with sustainable nutrition around the world. And then in terms of maybe my own personal commitment, which I guess is, is your next question, I think you know working within an organization that is very committed to sustainability, I think I'm going to maybe really use this platform to continue to advocate for the importance of sustainable nutrition, continue to work with groups like the World Food Programme, like Concern International, and really work towards making sure that sustainable nutrition is available for all. Catherine, do you see some sacrifice in that? Is there an implied sacrifice when we commit to sustainability? I have to say, I do not believe there is because you know, if, if you just think how the, how the world has changed, how attitudes have changed, how consumers have changed, how employees have changed, how organizations have changed, I just think there's a real realization that you can't be profitable or sustainable. The reality is they're the same side of the two sides of the same coin. So this idea of sustainable business strategies moving forward, I believe that, that um, it's not an either or and that ultimately the organizations are committed to that, employees are committed to that, uh, future talent is committed to that. So I do not see that uh, a sacrifice has to be made. Thanks, Catherine. So Akshay, I know you're inherently an optimistic person, but you're also highly analytical and you recognize this is a daunting challenge. Where do you find optimism? So I think, one, like I said, one of the most powerful things that's happened, you know, with the advent of the mobile devices, with You've got an entire generation now growing up where barriers aren't there. There are no geographical barriers. And if you look at climate change, I think Meg alluded it really well, we're a few years away from a point of no return. Yet you've got technology that's binding us together. You've got technological innovation that's coming to life on a variety of different fronts, from carbon capture to recycling technologies to the way we're looking at food sourcing from you know what Catherine's talked about. So when you start looking at the nexus of that and you start to see what's coming forward in time here and you've got a generation that's being born into it that's not debating this anymore they're past the point of discussion it's internalized to them i mean even talk to my kids and you know everybody's like they get it this is not a conversation anymore should we solve the problem the question is how are we going to get there which is why i loop back to the term mindfulness and, and collective consciousness because once you get to that threshold i think the human spirit's always there, and we can we can definitely move this initiative forward quickly. And I think that's the power of what we're facing today. And what's Corning Glass, specifically Corning Gorilla Glass, commitment to that sustainability agenda? I think the focus for us this year, like I said, is with the FOSI Fund. I think the work that they're doing in Africa. So, you know, when you look at the gorillas, it's not just about the gorillas. It's about the environment, the ecosystem and everything around it. And it's really important for us because we've got to be very selective and focused on where we go with this. And I think the work we're doing with them is really important and the work they're doing, I think is really critical. And it's, and it's really inspiring what they're doing. What's your personal commitment? I know you're a parent. Well, so, you know, my personal commitment goes back to the fact that I kind of look at the most powerful force we have against this is the aggregation of human capability. There's 7 billion of us. So, you know, 20 years ago when I first got into living systems and started studying it, I sort of made a pledge to myself. I said, you know, every day I'm going to get up and ask the question, what am I doing better to be part of the environment, not be away from it? Number one. And then what actions am I taking every single day to reduce my footprint on the planet? And along the journey of conscious awareness, what am I doing to influence people at work, at home and at play? So that's been sort of a journey for the last 20 years, and it's a mission I want to continue. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing your mission. Now, Kimberly, same question. Where are you getting positive energy? You live this conversation every day at DuPont Water Solutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm resonating with some of the other comments, especially there's less of a dialogue around the if, it's more the how, where, when, how much. What gives me, I guess, optimism, I'm optimistic anyway, but I see, I'm feeling a mindset shift 
which is driving a behavior changes. So that's giving me the most optimism. I feel like there's been an awakening and awareness. There's been so much more emphasis on driving our sustainability vision at, at DuPont too. So it's incredibly encouraging. And what is the commitment on the part of the company and your brand to continuity of that agenda? Yeah, so sustainability is intrinsic to the brand and the purpose. So it's sort of tie all together for DuPont. So the the purpose statement is, you know, we make the essential innovations to to help the world thrive, right? So that's kind of turning all of our energy, you know, as much as we also are are driving our own footprint and our own handprint activities, but, you know, how do we innovate? How do we, you know, do a better job with lightweight in cars or, you know, getting us, you know, more deployment of 5G, you know, what technologies are needed to, to get over some of those barriers and then water as well. How do we open up access to more people? How do we make things more optimized for our industrial customers? And it is a world of and. So, you know, the, you know where do we have that business benefits, efficiency benefits and sustainability and sustainability benefits, they all line up together. And so really driving driving those solutions. So that's sort of the broad, I guess, commitment. But there are some very specific commitments that I'd invite you to just go to the website and familiarize yourself if you like. But one thing I am pretty proud of for DuPont is we have a whole, you know, piece of our sustainability commitment is around diversity and inclusion. So our goal is to be, you know, the most inclusive company. And so one of the world's most inclusive companies, I should say. So that's that's really exciting to see that that connection and, and how it all fits together because we don't we don't have, you know, diversity and diversity of thought and really getting everyone's ideas. It, we're not going to make it. And what's your personal commitment on an individual basis, Kimberly? So my personal commitment, and I sort of thought about that a lot over the holidays, but, you know, just asking myself what's essential, right? So what's essential? You know, all we have is our time. So what's the most important thing I can be doing? What is uniquely something I can contribute versus maybe somebody else can? So just constantly resetting, resetting, asking that question over and over again and trying not to let the noise kind of pull me in a direction that's not the right direction. Thank you for that. And finally, Meg. Where are you seeing hope and optimism? No 19-year-old daughter is tuning into this. And the fact that she's tuning into it gives me a tremendous amount of optimism because it's that age group that we need to unite with and behind to push what we need to do. So like my daughter, Annabelle, 71% of people in the age group 13 to 39 believe that climate change is an immediate threat to human life a massive change. The good news is, is that 72% of them feel like hashtag movements, this social change that we are all feeling, that those movements have the power to make a difference. And that's exactly what we need to do. You know, Frank talked about how we need to be paying attention to climate change, not as a, it's, it's some view it as a luxury that, oh, well, I need to pay attention to climate change. It's later. No, it's right now. And the people that are suffering the most from climate change are the most vulnerable communities, those tiny little countries in the Pacific who have to think about migrating with dignity because they will no longer have a country to live on. That's right now. It's those vulnerable populations that we all need to act for. And the fact that we have so much activism from our youth and from others to help us with that gives me a, a tremendous amount of positivity around what we're trying to do. And what's the Nature Conservancy's commitment to continuing the sustainability agenda and also your personal commitment, Meg, knowing that Annabelle is listening and she will hold you accountable? She will hold me accountable, of course, and I hope that everybody else will as well. You know, I would say the Nature Conservancy is committed to, you know, working hard, putting our force between science and, and pushing forwards on very ambitious goals and, and really helping to, you know, collaborate with others to move towards a place where in 2030 we, we are no longer in an emergency situation. My personal goal is to tell those stories of people from those vulnerable communities to lift them up, to make them personal, to really reach the hearts of those we might not have reached before about how important this is and really speak up for those people who haven't had a chance to speak up for themselves. 
invite them in and personally make sure that um, that they're heard. Wonderful. Well, thank you for that, Meg. And in, in thanking all of our panel, here are my reflections in on this conversation as we think of the world of and, which is certainly a theme that has emerged. In, in preparing for this discussion, I'm reminded of the father of modern capitalism, Adam Smith, who in 1759, in the theory of moral sentiments, proffers that it is in the interest of the businessman to know that his interest and society's interest is connected. In modern marketing parlance, we would probably say that brands can be a force for growth and a force for good. As we've observed this afternoon, COVID-19 has lifted the veil to reveal that the ways we've been doing business and keeping score, GDP, quarterly earnings, is not fit for purpose. It has illuminated myriad dysfunctions, demonstrated that we are building economies, businesses that are vulnerable. It has also shone a light on the systemic inequities in society. The pandemic has also placed renewed and accelerated focus on the planet-people connection. And as many of you have touched on today, companies' response to these crises has heightened the conviction that brands can be a catalyst for positive systems change. Therein lies my opportunity for optimism. To achieve the necessary impact, it appears that we have to have the kind of responsibility creativity and investment focus that we heard from the panel today. In listening to our panel, it's clear to me and becoming clearer that to achieve success, we have to recast sustainability, not as a burden, but as a means to unleash and capture gains. The gains you all shared, gains from galvanizing talent, mobilizing and unlocking innovation, driving buyer preference, attracting investors, and reimagining ecosystems where private, public, and social sector are all collaborating in a meaningful way. To today's audience, here's my handful of questions inspired by this panel. And I will leave you with these questions to ponder. How ready are you for this wave of stakeholder capitalism and inclusive growth? How well do you understand what your stakeholders value? Do you have a brand purpose that resonates broadly? How is your brand showing up? How far and where will your brand travel? And ultimately, do you have a plan to create and communicate value to all stakeholders? Or will you be left behind, mired in inertia, or worse yet, nostalgia for what used to be? As I pose these questions, I also raise our collective Siegel and Gale hands to help you find the answers. Thank you to our CMO panel. Thank you, Frank. Catherine, Akshay, Kimberly, and Meg. We look forward to tracking your progress as you live out the commitments shared today. Thank you to my production team, led by Alison Shiver and Ashley Noonan, assisted as always by Mick Smith, Aaron Proud, and Ashi Ewing, and blog editor Daniel Alonso and designer Gisem Karatas. We will be back on May 5th for our next Future of Branding panel, when I will be joined by five CMOs and their parents for a Silver Economy edition. Meanwhile, thank you all very much. I'm Margaret Malloy, thanking everyone on behalf of Siegel and Gale for joining us. Thank you.
Thank you for joining How CMOs Commit. You've heard the strategic insights and professional commitments of top brand builders from around the world. I hope you also enjoyed my reflections on how this conversation is relevant to all marketers. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast app. And please rate, review, and share this podcast. Until next time, this is how CMOs commit.